I remember riding a bike, learning to ride a bike with my dad and it just being amazing. And, uh, later that day, figuring out how to ride with no hands and just being in awe of being able to get somewhere on your own. It was just the best feeling. Hey, what's up? This is Kat. Welcome to the Joyride. Hey, what's up, Joyriders? This is Kat, and you're listening to episode number 19 of the Joyride podcast, where we celebrate women on bikes. On today's show, we're going to chat with the cyclist lawyer, Megan Hotman. We're going to talk about her first bikepacking trip, developing your competitive side, and the one thing she wishes cyclists would know about the law. All the links to everything we discuss is going to be available in the show notes at girleatsbike.com forward slash joyride019. I also encourage you to follow Megan on the Instagram at cyclist underscore lawyer. She's got some great content on there that'll get you inspired to ride. While you're at it, of course, I would like you to follow the show at the Joyride Podcast. Instagram is where I like to hang out. I love seeing all your bike pics. They are super inspiring. Go ahead and tag the show if you've got a winter bike commute and you want to share it because I have been in a winter bike commute hell for, um, oh, I don't know, uh, I guess... I guess I'm really only going to say the past week. That's kind of what's been going on here. If you can hear any excitement in my voice, which might be negligible (laughs) sounding at this point, but if you can hear anything in my voice, it is the unbridled excitement that after a week of being buried under a foot of snow and ice here in Portland, Oregon, uh, it is currently a balmy 46 degrees. Uh, thaw apocalypse is happening and there is lots of actual pavement out there. So uh, I have been um, in working from home and public transit hell. Um, respect to all of the the riders who are, you know, I'm not going to call people fair weather cyclists because I would just want you to ride your bike when you want to and when you feel safe. And when you don't feel safe, don't be a hero. So I'm not going to uh, denigrate people by saying fair weather cyclist. But, you know, I've got a, a lot of respect for the folks who figure out public transportation systems in the city. Um, if you have not ridden your bike here in Portland since November because of the rain or the weather and you've been doing public transit instead, you know, rock out. I totally, I feel you. I feel like we're on the same page a little bit more now, but I am so excited to get on the bike. It's been it's been over a week. Uh, I'm recording this Thursday morning, January 19th, and we got snow last Tuesday night on my commute home. Uh, the snow was starting at the end of my day last Tuesday. And um, yeah, I think I was really excited about like, and I've been really excited about my ability to sort of ride through an inch of snow here or there. Um But what we have experienced here in Portland has been absolutely bonkers, especially for somebody like myself who um, has lived in places where we get this kind of weather on a regular basis, like upstate New York. In fact, all the transplants here have been sort of mesmerized at how the city doesn't handle the snow. Um, But that's a different conversation, perhaps. Anyway, let's just get into it because I have got to get my legs moving. I've still been eating for the past week, like I'm commuting 15 miles a day and my body is just ready to go. So without further ado, let's meet Megan Hotman, the cyclist lawyer. (laughs) 
Megan Hopman, welcome to the Joyride. Thanks for having me this morning. Yay, I'm so excited to Yay. talk with you. So where in the world are you? I am per currently sitting in Golden, Colorado, where it is lightly snowing. Where it is lightly snowing. Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask you, like, what what's that like this time of year? I hear uh, Colorado has mountains and that it snows. <laughs> How does yeah. that affect you uh, and your bike life? I have to be honest, we're really lucky here in the Denver area in that when it snows, it rarely stays on the ground for more than a day. Just with it being so, so dry here and the sun coming out virtually every day, uh, it's it's really a city that you can ride pretty much year round, particularly now with the advent of fat bikes and studded tires for the truly, truly tough that want to ride on the days that are, you know, icy or below freezing. Even those things make it possible to ride year round here. I, I personally have become a bit more of a wimp when it comes to riding in the cold. It's it's not the snow that turns me off. It's the cold. I have a really hard time dressing warm enough to keep my fingers and toes warm enough. So I, my cutoff is, is gradually increasing in terms of a minimum temperature. But uh, days like this with light snow, it's very rideable. That's awesome. I'm, I'm learning that a little bit myself with where my threshold for cold is as I'm doing winter commuting now for the first time ever is like, ooh. <laughs> It's pretty frosty. It can be. I have to say I've invested in a few things that make a huge difference, one of which is a pair of electric gloves that have little battery chargers in them, and they're fantastic because they actually keep the fingers warm. Unfortunately, the battery only lasts for two hours on the high setting, so I may have to actually invest in a second pair to get me through a longer ride, but those have been worth their weight in gold. <laughs> I'm like frozen in a state of amazement right now that there <laughs> is even like such a product out there in it's the world. It's a thing. It's a thing. Yes. And you can even get them on Amazon. <laughs> okay. We're going to, we're going to learn more about that and we're going to okay. link up in the show notes because that is mighty interesting. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, we, we're connected through the Instagram where your handle is uh, cyclist lawyer, I think underscore between there, right? Yes, correct. Cool. Um, and I, I see that you do like some racing and you're very, you do some like speedy bicycle things. Is that the kind of riding that you enjoy doing? Yes, that's the short answer. <laughs> I also enjoy the slow types of riding too. Uh, and recently started dabbling back in triathlon. I just finished my second Ironman a couple weeks ago. So I do sort of all the bikes and all the rides. That's fun. Uh, That's fun. Fast and slow, commuting as well as racing and, and everything in between. Via running marathons, which turned into a very short stint trying to be a triathlete. And I'm really not that uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm an okay swimmer, but I'm not a fast runner. Uh, and so through process of elimination, I would do very well on the bike leg of the triathlon, and that attracted me to cycling. So I became very serious about cycling my third year of law school, which was back in 2003, 2004, and then really struggled with how I put together this new passion for the sport that requires a lot of time with the fact that I was a baby lawyer and expected to work a lot of hours out of law school. And so... Um, decided to pursue government work. I worked for a judge in Kansas City, which uh, is a pretty standard government work week, eight to five. So a 40-hour work week, in my mind, allowed me to keep training and pursuing bike racing and went on to become category one and really pursued becoming a professional cyclist quite strongly there for those years and, um, and actually was able to make it onto a professional cycling team on the road in 2011. Um, also raced on the track during that time period and got to race some World Cups and travel all over the place on the velodrome front, which was fantastic. And then really turned my focus to my practice around 2012 
a couple injuries and just some other things kind of made me realize that uh, I was better served focusing on my practice than I was on bike racing. And so transitioned more into stuff that takes less time to train for, like cyclocross, like mountain bike racing, uh, started getting into the gravel stuff, you know, started doing uh, Dirty Kanza and Gravel Worlds and um, uh, Tusher Crusher, which is a great event out in Utah and things like that that are slower, further, and they're more just about sort of suffering in solitude and being self-supported. <laughs> and uh, and now, and as I said, just last year and this year, uh, taking on an Ironman uh, once a year to also just kind of keep me hungry and keep me motivated. And so, uh, all as I said, all the bikes and all the things <laughs> and all the kinds of rides that you can do. Uh, how much variation. That's really awesome. Mm-hmm. So with, with your practice, you, uh, okay. So describe your practice for me. So I'm a law firm exclusively devoted to cyclists. I represent cyclists all over the country. The bulk of my practice is devoted to cyclists who are unfortunately, uh, hit by a motorist. There's a small percentage of cases we handle where cyclists are injured by someone's dog being on the loose or attacking them. And then a small percentage of my practice also involves industry work, contract reviews, liability uh, issues for bike shops, bike teams, you know, helping manufacturers rewrite their map policies, uh, just looking at copyright and trademark type issues, but all of it is cycling centric. So we don't do car crashes. We don't do slip and falls. You know, we are a very specific niche of personal injury practice. And that kind of specialization sounds like it's really key in um yeah. in this area of law right i think it is i personally believe yes i think cycling cases have a nuance to them that a car crash for example doesn't uh you would be surprised how many lawyers don't know that a bike fit when you buy a new road bike or a new uh, any bike and you pay good money to get a bike fit that that can cost you two to three hundred dollars and each time you get a new bike you need a bike fit so if you're a cyclist who gets hit by a car and your bike is totaled and you now have to get a new bike, factoring in the expense of a bike fit is just an example of something that the average personal injury lawyer has no idea. Um, and I obviously have personal experience with that because I have undergone numerous bike fits and I understand the process. And uh, also, I think just having a passion for these cases, it goes beyond just getting the injured cyclist a good settlement. It also involves being really active in the traffic case that flows from the charges filed against the at-fault driver and really kind of keeping the pressure on the law enforcement officer as well as the district attorney as well as the judge to, uh, you know, have some justice in the system and make sure that the driver doesn't just get off with a minor slap on the wrist. So, uh, yeah, I think passion matters in this field, and I'm really fortunate and blessed to be able to solely focus on this area. Do you remember your light bulb moment for for <laughs> this area, going into this area of law? I do. I was working for a law firm up in Boulder when I was racing on that pro team I told you about and trying to figure out how to put it all together. We were doing some cases that had nothing to do with cycling and it was interesting, but it wasn't lighting my fire. And a girl that I raced with uh, regularly was hit by a car and she contacted me and she said, Megan, I know you're a lawyer. I don't know what kind of law you practice, but this just happened and you and I are friends through bike racing. You know, what do you recommend I do? And I really wanted to help her, so I went to my boss and I said, hey, do you mind if we take her case here at the law firm? I'd really like to handle this for her. And he said, sure. So we handled her case and we did very, very well for her. And I just that was my aha moment because I got to work for a client that I really, truly cared about, doing law that I really, truly cared about. And, and I, I decided that I really wanted to do that all the time. 
And at the time, I also needed to free up some time for myself to be able to focus more on racing. And I wasn't able to do that as an associate. So that was also what prompted me to start my practice uh, at the ripe old age of 29, which people tell you is, is crazy. And so that that was the, the launch, the launching point. That sounds fantastic. Well, thanks for the for the work that you're doing. I saw a post that you met with um, what, the DA there in, what yes. was it, in Boulder. In Boulder, yes, yes. So that's an elected position here in Colorado. Uh, he was just reelected to be the district attorney for Boulder County, and he is really actively pursuing solutions to some of these bike issues. Boulder, as you know, is a cycling mecca, and it holds itself out as as such. And there are a lot of cyclists and triathletes that move there, uh, a lot of professionals also. And they have unfortunately had four cycling fatalities this season alone for a variety of different issues, uh, reasons. And really, he is being very, very proactive in saying, do we need to institute new laws that say if you touch your cell phone while you're driving, you get this massive fine? Do we need to institute new laws that say if you hit a cyclist, the penalties are more severe? How do we educate motorists? How do we educate cyclists? Less talk, more action. Let's figure out some actual solutions. And uh, I was one of the folks that was looped in on that meeting. And it sounds like we're going to have some ongoing quarterly meetings to address these things. And I just think that's absolutely fantastic. And I wish more cities were getting on the kind of front end of these issues. But I'm very appreciative to him and what his office is attempting to do. And I think they've got the right idea to loop in the key players from each of the different aspects. Uh, so that everyone's on the same page and, and it's exciting to see where it's going. That's, it sounds like, um, like really great advocacy work there too. Um, yeah, yeah, it, I, I, yes, yes. That's, that's where it mattered. I always say I would love to put myself out of, a, out of a job. If, if we could make it so safe for cyclists that my phone stopped ringing, I would be so happy. And then I would probably just go mow lawns for a living and that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be fine with me. <laughs> Uh, what do you what do you wish cyclists knew regarding the the law there? Oh, thank you so much for asking me that question. If I could have planted one, that would have been it. Oh, so, sweet. Thank you. That's that's a great question. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple bullet points, and this applies to cyclists all over the country, not just in Colorado. It really matters when we follow the law. I'm not saying that by running a stop sign, you deserve to be hit by a car. I'm definitely not saying that. I'm saying from a public perception point of view, it matters when we are obedient and we follow the same rules on our bike that we follow when we drive our car. For example, not running red lights. That's a big, big, big one. I hear it all the time from people like the district attorney and, and law enforcement and motorists and public citizens. We are required to follow the same laws that we have to follow in our car. That's the same statutory language in all 50 states, which means all the same rights and all the same obligations apply. We are required to have lights on our bike from sunset to sunrise. You've got to have a white light on the front. You've got to have a red light or reflector on the back. We are required to signal our turns. Uh, one of the biggest things that causes anxiety among motorists is they can't read our minds. They don't know what we're doing. We're unpredictable. The more we can signal and be predictable and make eye contact, just like we do when we're in our car, the, the better this gets. And wearing reflective gear and not being a bike ninja riding around at night, um, just honestly riding your bike as though you're driving your car and being assertive and being um, offensive and, and anticipating, it really matters. And I, I mean, that would be the one thing I would beg of cyclists nationwide is drive your bike like you drive your car and don't ask motorists to read your mind. 
and please stop at stoplights. <laughs> I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, definitely from a predictability point of view, you know, yeah. um, like it's just, you're safer, the more predictable you are. Um, exactly. exactly. And, and I would say the last thing I would add is get your friends riding. Cause I do believe the more people that we have on bikes, the safer it becomes for all of us because it stops becoming an anomaly or an exception and it starts to become the norm or the rule. And the more people that know a cyclist, whether it's their neighbor or their coworker, or someone they go to church with, the more likely they are to be friendly and kind and pass us with three feet and give us some space and give us some, you know, room out on the roads. So I think, you know, getting more people on bikes is, is important. I'm wondering a little bit, I mean, it's not just from a safety point of view, but in terms of if something should happen if a collision happens um, and you're required to, not required to, but then you decide to, that you're taking action or you need to get the law involved. Yes. Um, following the law is going to bolster your chances of having better outcomes oh, should you no have question. to go to trial, right? No question. I mean, if the cyclist is in the wrong, if you're riding the wrong way into traffic and a collision happens, if you are wearing all black at night with no lights and you are hit, uh, it is very likely that the cyclist is going to receive the ticket and not the motorist. And so then to try and pursue the motorist auto insurance for civil recovery, good luck because their, their driver isn't at fault, or at least they don't believe so based on the police investigation. So yes, the more, the more you are in compliance with the law, absolutely. It helps you when you are, if, if you are involved in a collision and you need to pursue remedies. So I want to transition a little bit okay. and I want to ask you a little bit about like your foundational cycling stuff. Okay. Are you from, are you from Colorado? No, uh, born and raised in South Dakota and then spent the bulk of my life in Omaha, Nebraska. So where I've been did, out here for 10 years. For 10 years. So where did you, where'd you learn how to ride a bike? Do you remember your first bike? I do actually, I should send you a very funny picture yeah, of it. Please do. <laughs> so, it's a tricycle that I think my parents rescued from a dump or a pawn shop or something because the seat was all rusted out. So my mom put one of those really fluffy toilet seat covers on it, <laughs> like the fringe one. <laughs> Shag carpeting. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to send you this picture. It's going to crack you up. I've That's got great. this little like um, ch chunky baby belly and I'm rocking pigtails. And uh, she said I used to tear down the driveway like an absolute terror and it would scare her because she thought I would ride out into the road. Uh, but I do remember learning to ride a bike as a child. I don't remember that tricycle cause I was probably, you know, two or whatever, but I remember riding a bike, learning to ride a bike with my dad and it just being amazing. And, uh, later that day, figuring out how to la ride with no hands and just being in awe of being able to get somewhere on your own. It was just the best feeling. Um, but I, I'm not going to say that I then rode a bike seriously from that point until, at, you know, discovering it in law school. That was really the first time I got serious about cycling. Before that, I was a runner. Um, it is so it's, I find it has been a really common thing that we sort of like have bicycles when we're kids. And then there's this huge gap that happens during adolescence. Yeah. Um, so how did you find it again during law school? Um, so I was a cross country and track runner in high school. I was not good at all. It was the only sport really in my large, very competitive high school that you didn't have to try out for. So they just let you keep coming back, which is very sweet of them. And so I did that for all four years in high school. 
And then when I got to college and sort of lost that structure of having a coach and having practices, I quickly realized I was going to be in trouble just from sort of a health and, you know, the whole freshman 15 or, or whatever perspective. So I got pretty curious about running my first marathon and ran my first one in 2001, which was my senior year of college, and then went on to run three more kind of over the next couple of years. And it was enjoyable, but I can't say that I actually enjoyed the marathon itself. It's a lot of suffering, in my opinion. <laughs> and so that prompted me to say, well, maybe triathlon would be a bit more interesting. Did a couple triathlons in 2003, uh, 2002, and, and that's when I realized, oh, no, the bike leg is really where I'm having fun. Let's get rid of these other two right. parts and focus on the bike. Um, so how, how many bikes do you have? uh i think i'm up to 12 it's wow that's impressive (laughs) ridiculous i was not expecting a double digit answer (laughs) well yeah yeah um all right what's next okay let's yeah we have to do the count because i I could be off here but uh so i have two road bikes one's kind of for training and one's for racing I have two cyclocross bikes. One is a single speed belt drive, which I do some single speed events on. The other is a, is a standard uh, Cannondale Super X cross bike. I have two mountain bikes. One is the Scalpel, which is the full suspension Cannondale, and one is the FSI, which is the hardtail Cannondale. I've got the uh, Cannondale fat bike, which of course is a staple. My very first serious bike from 1995, the Bridgestone uh, MB1, which is my commuter bike. I've got the basket on the front of that. And, uh, I am forgetting, oh, my time trial bike, um, for racing triathlons and, uh, time trials. I'm not sure what number that put me up to. I what sort I, of, what? I, I was sort of like roughly finger maybe counting nine. and I think we landed maybe around like 10, maybe nine or okay. 10. Okay. Yeah. I was trying to do the doubles and at a certain point, cause you're like, I got two of these, I got a couple of, you know, take two, they're small. And at a certain exactly. point, I just like ran out of pairs of fingers to. Oh, oh, I forgot my track bike. Yeah, so I've oh got a track goodness. bike to race on the velodrome. So, yeah. Anyway, that's the stable. That's so awesome. It's super fun. Yeah. Uh, do you have? Oh God, I can't even. I don't even want to ask this question, but I'm going to do well, it because it started coming out of my mouth. Which is, do you have a favorite? Like, what's your go-to? Like, who's your year, Who's your baby? <laughs> this year, it changes. I'll just tell you, it changes kind of based on injuries that I have or kind of what my mood is. Uh, this year, when I got that FSI hardtail, so it's a two-niner with a front shock, and it weighs 19 pounds for a mountain bike. It's incredibly light, and I really, really like the geometry on it. It's actually become my commuter, so I'm riding this really, really high-end mountain bike around to run my errands just because I really enjoy sitting on it, the feeling of it, being able to hit the dirt if I want to. Um, I also rode it on a bike packing trip this year where I loaded it up with all my gear and it got me through three days without any issues. So I think I developed a bit of affection for it just because it took such great care of me. <laughs> and, uh, I just, it's, it's my go-to right now for just about everything. And, uh, oftentimes when I ride to work, I take my dog with me. And so she runs next to me. And I also just like the bike for that because I feel really stable. And if she pulls me or if she, uh, does something unpredictable, I feel like I can handle it on that bike more so than a road bike, for example. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, does it have a name? No, it should, shouldn't it? <laughs> Do you have names for any of your bikes? I actually don't. Oh. And I'll tell you why that practice stopped. I've been really, really blessed to be a Cannondale-sponsored athlete since 2008. 
So oftentimes these bikes are only with me for a year and then uh, I'm, I'm selling them and I'm getting a new one. And I learned early on not to get too attached. <laughs> that, that makes total sense. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. You know, yeah. Um, tell me about your bike packing trip. Oh, oh my gosh. So for an adult who's never been adult camping, it was a really big deal for me. There is a guy out of Fort Collins named Peter um, Disco who put this trip together and it was 50 cyclists. We departed from Fort Collins. This was in late July. We took off from New Belgium Brewery. And over the course of three days, we rode approximately 200 miles and climbed about 2,000 feet and arrived in Steamboat. And so he had pre-planned the two nights of uh, where we would be camping. And one was um, in a camp. uh, I'm sorry, it was three nights total. But one was a, a campground and one was a city park. And that was really fun. And so... He had the maps. He had the route. We had one van on the road to provide some support and first aid if we needed it. And then we had this great uh, group called the Cyclist Menu, Heidi and Xander accompanying us, and they did all of the cooking. And they're kind of a farm-to-table campsite cooking setup. It's incredible. And so we didn't at least have to carry our food and water, which was really nice. But we had to carry our sleeping bags and our clothes and all our tools and spare tires and all that stuff. And so... Um, you know, part of it is just a matter of getting creative with your bike bags and figuring out what fits on your bike frame and how much weight to put where and, and then just going for it. And it was really a huge growth experience for me. I was alone a couple of the times and got myself pretty lost without water and had a bit of a panic attack on one day, but got through it. And it was just great because at the end of the day, we're all completely shelled and shellacked from really, really hard riding and just to get to hang out at these campsites and enjoy the food that was prepared for us and just the camaraderie. And I mean, some of these folks were riding basically townie bikes with flat pedals and van sneakers. <laughs> and some of us have, you know, race type equipment with clip in pedals and everyone got there. Everyone finished. Everyone was in good spirits every day. It was, it was fantastic. That sounds really great. Yeah. He's called, he's renamed it the ramble ride. This was called the steamboat rally this year, but he's renamed it the ramble ride and it's going to happen again in late July next year. So definitely check it out. We oh, had a gal awesome. here from Portland that took part in it and she had a blast. That sounds, that sounds like so much fun. And <laughs> it really was what a great like gateway drug too, because you don't have to carry your water. You've got SAG support should you need it or well, not your water, but you don't have to like carry all your food and your cooking yeah. gear. Yeah. Um, because Which I can't even imagine that. I have to say it. My 19-pound bike became a 36-pound bike with my gear, and I packed very, very conservatively. And we each had to bring our own like coffee cup and plate um, so that we didn't generate any trash with the, the meal stuff. And I packed very light. And so I can't imagine then adding food and water to the mix. I can't even imagine it. So, yeah, we were pretty spoiled. <laughs> yeah. Uh, w- uh, wow. Um, that sounds like the way that I would like to start bike packing I haven't I do um I've done like some light light touring like short you know overnights and things like that sure but with always needing to make sure that I had nutrition and make sure that I had enough water and things like that so and that's on the road um oh so yeah the, so all gravel bike, road which was nice yeah so the bike packing is like uh I just the the concept of like having to figure out okay make sure I have enough food 
smaller bags because you don't have panniers, but you know, just like your right. entire setup is different. Um, so that sounds like the way that I would want to kind of dip my toe in the water there for sure. Well, we would love to have you check it out on uh, Facebook or I'll send you the info, but um, I mean, it's, it's a public event. So it's basically open to the first 50 people and it's going to be called the ramble ride in 2017. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to have you. That'd be great. Uh, do you have any favorite bike shops in the area that you want to give a shout out to? I do. We are lucky to be partnered with a shop here in Golden, Colorado called Big Ring Cycles, and they are the um, largest Cannondale dealer in the area, and also just they're fantastic. They're under new ownership this year, and the new owner has made a particular point to be a very, very welcoming and friendly shop to female cyclists, which I greatly, greatly appreciate, and he and his staff have just taken really, really good care of us, um, and, and I really just appreciate how seriously, they take their customer service. So I'll give them some love. Customer service is marketing. (laughs) It really is. Everybody, customer service. And I don't care what industry you're in, customer service is marketing. It really is. Super important. It really is. And taking care of your female customers. I mean, if you believe the statistics, that's the, that's the buying market right now. And and there are some shops just like car dealerships, I'm sorry to say, that really get that aspect wrong and uh, make women feel silly for asking questions. And that that is not a good business model. So um, I just I really am thankful to these guys for being so wonderful. Um, do you have a piece of advice for women who are thinking about, um, you know, I don't I don't know if it's even like getting on the bike, but maybe getting becoming more competitive on the bike. You sound like between being a trial lawyer and a professional cyclist, you're a pretty competitive individual. Um, do you have a piece of advice for women who would like to explore that a little bit? Yes. Yes, I do. And uh, we're going to talk specifically within the context of the question you asked me, which is assuming that you're already a cyclist but want to become more competitive because my advice would definitely vary if you were like someone new just trying to get into cycling. So with respect to becoming more competitive on the bike, my advice is usually twofold. One, get involved with a team that aligns with your goals, uh, that has the same types of racers that you are or want to become, and preferably those who are just slightly faster and stronger than you so that you can be pushed. Uh, this sport offers a lot of opportunities to learn every single lesson the hard way, and I certainly took that path, unfortunately. So things just take longer to master. If you can surround yourself with people that are stronger and more experienced, in theory, you shorten that learning curve. And I would say, uh, along with that, race as often and as much as you possibly can, because it is a learning curve curve kind of no matter how you slice and dice it and some people learn it more quickly than others but the reality is the more races you do the more you learn the lessons uh there's so much about bike racing regardless of discipline that boils down to being like a chess match and the strategy plays out a million different ways but you start to see patterns and you start to read body language and you start to anticipate you know you've done 50 races and you've seen the same thing kind of play out now four or five times you start to recognize it soon enough that you can uh, make it work to your advantage so those of you and and i would say maybe third is to hire a coach that can help you really strategize your training and your plan i think it's too easy for people that want to get more serious to flail about and do a lot of group rides and do a lot of base miles and often overlook the intensity that it takes to become good at the higher level. And um, frankly, no one likes to do intervals. It's not like the thing that we enjoy doing, but that's the bread and butter of getting faster on your bike, again, regardless of discipline. 
So having a coach tell you what to do and how to do it is is really fundamental. And um, and I think it goes without saying that getting a power meter of some kind to track your your data is critical so that you're not guessing. Um, I've trained with PowerTap since 2008. I love their products. I love their hubs. And I'm a huge fan of of the company based out of Wisconsin. But there are also, of course, other power tap and meter manufacturers. And I think if someone is going from I'm a pretty serious racer or a pretty serious rider to I want to start racing my bike and I want to get good at it, training with power is definitely where it's at. I mean, that's even just like a way to start becoming, I guess, more competitive with yourself. Totally. Totally. I mean, you cannot lie with the data. I, you know, heart rate training is great and it's definitely a good starting point when you're new because a heart rate monitor is very inexpensive. But heart rate is subject to so many variables like you didn't sleep very much or you drank too much last night or you're overtrained or you're undertrained or you're dehydrated. And so heart rate is good, but it's not always the most accurate indicator. And there's a lot of guessing with that. And whereas a, with power, a watt is a watt. And so you put out X watts and then you input it to your tr- training peaks or whatever software you use and you get to see the data and the data don't lie. <laughs> so it tells you the true story of what's going on inside you. And it's really fantastic. And, and for someone who's terrible at math, me, I love the data aspect of training. It's fun to see the progression and it's fun to see the logic. And uh, frankly, it makes some of those intervals more tolerable just because you know that the the math matters. Yeah, I really, I like, I like being able to look back at something and I'm only tracking like commuting miles, you know, I'm only, I'm just tracking distance and, and time and things like though. that. Yeah. I, I love being able to look back and have some sort of way to measure because days, you know, slip together at a certain yeah. point when you can look back over a period of time. Um, well, and let me just make a little plug along those lines. I don't know if you're using Strava or what you're using to track, but The fun thing about Strava, especially for commuters, is, and if you're trying to get stronger, is to see how long your particular route took you and then to start to see that you're making progress on that route as compared to yourself as well as as other cyclists. But from an advocacy perspective, Strava matters, and we really want commuters logging all of their routes, I don't care how short they are, on Strava because cities are paying for that data from Strava and using it to implement their bike infrastructure plans. Whoa, that's yeah, that's cool. In other words, the more often you ride that same route every day where you're going to work or whatever, it matters on Strava because those heat maps, those those maps that are generated from those routes are then being purchased. I think cities are paying 20 to 25,000 from Strava for that data and then they're using it to say, well, this is where the masses are riding, so maybe we should put in a bike lane, or maybe we should put in a bike path right here. Wow, so that's, that's huge. That's yeah, actually, it really is. Yeah, that's really huge because, like Strava, I I actually I track with both Map My Ride and with Strava because Great. I am perhaps the biggest nerd, even though I'm no, not going to do anything it. with this data. Oh, um, I love it. <laughs> uh, so I just like do that because I was like, oh, what are these two things the same? So I just am now in the habit of, of putting them both on when I leave for work. And, um, but I've always had this idea because it's Strava that it's like, oh, I, you know, it's only if you're, you know, super speedy, it only matters no if you're going no way. for QOM and you're super speedy, but, um, okay. So call out there commuters. Yes. You know, hook up Log with Strava. Data. Yep. Don't worry about being competitive with other people. No, just no, it's no, for the no. good of the land. It really is. It truly, really, truly is. I mean, you can look that up if you don't believe me. That is part of their 
business model. Uh, as you know, it's a free platform unless you pay for premium. And one of the big reasons they have been asking everyone to log those rides is because cities are paying for the data. So yes, please do. I totally believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm convincing that. Oh means. my goodness. You're like, well, let me tell you. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's super cool. Um, you know, you said something a minute ago when we started talking about becoming more competitive. Um, you said finding a team that aligns with the kind of cyclist you want to be. You said something sort yeah. of like that. Yes. How, yes. how, like, how do you know? How do you know? That's yeah. Great... Yeah. Okay. I just like, what, what does that look like? Yeah. Question mark here. Yeah. And it's, that's a very valid question. And to be honest, the short answer is sometimes you don't, sometimes you do have to try out a few teams to find the right fit. And gotcha. sometimes it can change season to season based on your goals and also based on who's running the team or the compilation of the team matter. Um, you know, it's just like a workplace group. It's, it's like any team or club, the chemistry has got to be right for it to serve you. But generally speaking, what I meant by that comment was, uh, let's say that you're a cat four female road racer. And in a couple years, your goal is to be a cat one, which is, uh, the top level. You would want to then seek out a road cycling team that has everything from cat four to cat one members, or is at least mentored or coached by upper, upper level cyclists to get you there. And in theory, these would be women that you could travel to the races that you're targeting and possibly implement some teamwork that would allow you to earn those upgrade points and get you where you want to go. If you're someone who wants to go from a Cat 4 to a Cat 1 and you join a local cycling club that is primarily social in nature where people are not racing and they're not traveling to bigger events, your goals are not going to be met very well in that right. environment. You might have a lot of fun socializing with everyone, but... You have everything from very, very social clubs where people ride bikes only to have an excuse to drink beer all the way through high-level local teams that are essentially farm teams or feeder teams who bring riders up to a certain point and then and then pass you on to the next level, which is what you're looking for if you want to develop yourself as a bike racer. Um, and I would also just say the personalities matter. You could have two race teams that on paper meet your needs. And one race team could be a particular type of, of person or membership, and one could be another. Maybe you have, um, uh, for lack of a better word, really uptight members versus very laid back members. If these are people that you're going to be racing with and traveling with, it's important that just on a human level, you connect with them. You don't necessarily have to like your teammates as best friends or be people that you want to socialize with outside of bike racing. But you need to make sure that you're on the same page because if everyone's trying to win a race to get upgrade points, that's a problem. Now you have teammates racing against each other. Mm. So it, these are important things to kind of get the lay of the land when you're joining these organizations and saying, here are my goals. Here's the kind of racer I am. Here's where I want to go. Are you all on board to help me get there? And if not, if you're going to put me to work helping you meet your goals, which that can sometimes be a very valid uh, approach, we make new members work for us. Well, you want to at least know that when you go into it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you spend a season very frustrated. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the crazy thing about cycling. It's a team sport, but only one person stands on the, on the podium. And only one person, the person on the podium, is the only one earning those upgrade points to go from a Cat 4 to a Cat 3 to a Cat 2 to a Cat 1. So if you have a supportive team of people who are willing to help you get to your goals, great. But if everyone there is going for the same thing, that can be a problem. Right, because of the way that all these different chess pieces have to work together. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, do you prefer, 
or I don't know, even know if preference is the right thing to, to uh, vamp that with, but like, do you like riding solo or with a group? I mean, I know you do a lot of group riding via racing, but what do you, sure. what do you think about that? You know, I do a lot less. Uh, I don't race criteriums. I don't race road races anymore. I don't race on the track anymore. I'm not doing any of the mass start events that would involve typically a teammate dynamic. I enjoyed those events back in the day. I enjoyed having teammates, especially when we would be all on the same page and we were racing cohesively as a unit. There is no better feeling in the world than to execute race strategy with your teammates. I mean, it just feels amazing. And then everyone shares the victory kind of regardless of who's on the podium. That's a great feeling. Uh, but now just based on some of the injuries I suffered and also just based on my schedule and kind of fitting these things in where I can and, and kind of just my mindset right now, I don't, I don't want to be in races where the likelihood of crashing is high. Uh, I've become more crash averse, which I think we all do as we get older, but just, it doesn't interest me anymore. The risks outweigh the benefits which is why I'm now drawn to these longer events where it's just honestly about solo suffering. And I just like to get in my headspace and test my own tenacity. And it has nothing to do with anybody else. And if I fail, it's solely because of something I've done and I'm not relying on anyone for help or support. That's just kind of where I'm at at this point. It's what I really enjoy about Ironman. It's, it's a long day. Uh, it's what I enjoy about Dirty Kanza. It's 200 miles on gravel, essentially self-supported. There's a couple stops um, I, I like that right now. That's just kind of where my head's at. So you have a book that is coming yeah. out next year, which is no, still it's out. It's already out. Oh, it's, it's out right out. now. It came out this August. Yeah. Just a couple months ago. Yep. Oh my goodness. You said yes, August I and I thought you meant the, this forthcoming. So this oh, is, so tell me about this and uh, tell me about who the, because this is a very, very, very serious, no, excuse yeah. me. It's very light. Uh, <laughs> light, easy reading for your bedside. Easy table. reading for the nightstand. Yeah. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about this, uh, this tome. So, uh, <clears throat> the short story is my co-author, Jeffrey Broker, is an accident reconstructionist, uh, an expert, uh, sort of the forensic science behind all things bike, why bikes fall apart, why bike helmets crash the way or crack the way they do, um, the nature and force and, and, uh, physics involved when a car hits a bike, that's his specialty. And he's based here in Colorado Springs. And I had worked with him as an expert in a couple of my early bike cases where we had him come in and testify as to those things I've just mentioned way back when he co-authored the first edition of this book with a gentleman named Paul Hill, who happened to be the librarian at Creighton University, which is where I happened to have gone to law school. And Mr. Hill was getting up in age and had no interest in helping with the revised updated edition. And so through those relationships, I was asked to step in as the bike attorney component for the new edition, which was really, really exciting. This happened back in 2013. And I basically set aside a giant chunk of time. It was four or five months where I kind of locked myself in my house and just updated the entire half of the book that I was responsible for. Um, Mr. Broker's section ended up taking a lot longer because just things change. Um, I mean, without getting into all the specifics, just a lot of stuff had changed. And so his chapters ended up taking a long, long time to update to be as accurate as possible. And so the end result is that we have this book that just came out this year in 2016. Um, and it is a compilation of all the state statutes and case law in my section. And then it's a compilation of all the engineering and reconstruction aspects in his section. 
and it's a really great resource. It's it's published by a company called Lawyers and Judges, so that is the intended market who would potentially have this on their bookshelf. But it's also great. I've had a lot of law enforcement offices that I work with purchase a copy for their officers to have reference. And I also know a lot of cyclists and other individuals involved in the advocacy realm that have purchased a copy. Uh, it's not a cheap book. It's $135 on their website. But for the audiences that will use it often, it's money well spent. And I couldn't be more excited to have my name on, on a publication like this. Yeah, this is a this is a for realsies very serious. Um, <laughs> this is very very serious document that that you've crafted. No, I'm saying that, and I'm you know I'm being a little good no, here, I, but um, I, no, I like your word. I like your word. That was great. So it's so the title, and we'll, you know we're going to link it up for anybody um, who is interested in knowing more about bicycle crash biomechanical and legal things. So the title is Bicycle Accidents, Crashes, and Collisions, Biomechanical Engineering and Legal Aspects since the second edition. So it is, yep. uh, uh, how, how heavy is this book and would you bring it with you on your next bikepacking trip? <laughs> I definitely would not. It weighs a bit. It's a hard cover and it's, it's a good size book. Yeah. It's... Uh, but in terms of the heaviness of the reading, I would say it's actually lighter than you might think and more interesting than you might think. Really? And, cool. uh, and, and yeah. And, um, both he and I, we make a point to inject a little bit of humor here or there. And, you know, especially using footnotes to sort of say some tongue in cheek things. Um, it, it's not maybe as dry as you would expect, but I'm not going to lie. It's, it's intended to be, you know, a research, uh, resource, not, not fun reading. <laughs> Yeah, I I totally get you. Well, I mean, I really do appreciate the the work that you're doing and the way that you are, um, you know, helping just making riding bikes safer, um, even if that is, you know, by nature of making sure that collisions are um, handled appropriately, that, you know, that drivers are responsible for their piece of the puzzle here. So, um, so thanks for doing that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. It really is fun. And, uh, and it, it, it led sort of indirectly to me working a lot with law enforcement. And I've now had the opportunity to educate almost every law enforcement office here along the front range in Colorado, which entails, you know, 10 to 15 different law enforcement entities, uh, simply because the process starts with their investigation at the crash scene. And I began to see that some of them were not getting it quite right, or that there was a lot of, uh, inconsistency among the offices and so at least with respect to that I feel really good that we have law enforcement on the right page you know like it or love it they have to live with what the state legislature puts in in the law and the statute says what it says and so it's just a matter of them knowing what it says and feeling comfortable about it and then feeling empowered to write the appropriate citation to either the cyclist or the motorist whomever they decide was at fault so I'm going to ask you one more question sure and this is earlier when we, when I said, um, you know, a piece of advice for women who are becoming more competitive. And then you said yes. you'd have a different answer if it was for someone who was just getting on the bike. Yes. What, tell me what kind of advice you'd give for women who are just getting into exploring getting on a bike at all. So my answer there would start with finding a bike shop that you really like and trust. Because if you are someone who has not ridden a bike since you were a child or it's been a while, part of this initial, uh, 
the process for you is finding a bike that you enjoy that doesn't cause you pain and discomfort. So that involves not only buying a bike that fits you appropriately, but then also being set up on the bike appropriately. I can't tell you how many women we lose to this sport right away because they get put on bikes that are too big, too small, or the saddle causes them so much female parts discomfort that they bail. And so I really believe that this part, at least for new female cyclists, starts with the equipment. So that's where finding that bike shop that's not condescending, that's open, that's honest, that treats you like an, the amazing woman that you are when you walk in, uh, that whole comfort level starts really there. And then I would say also finding women that are um, resources for you. So I sponsor a team called the Bike Ambassadors, and we're 10 women who focus primarily on commuting and getting other people commuting. Now, we all race a little bit, but that's not our focus. And so each of these women are riding to work, and they are then having coworkers come to them and say, I like what you're doing. How do I do that? How do I get my bike ready to ride to work? Where do I park it? How do I get dressed at work? How do I pack my clothes? How do you decide what route to ride? Where do you feel safe? So on and so on and so on. So I think the new rider needs to find resources that she can ask those questions of and try not to learn everything the hard way. And maybe there's a riding club or a local cycling group that also would be a good fit for that type of information. Um, oftentimes bike shops sponsor teams and groups. And so then you get some access to discounts. But not only that, you get access to other people that can help you get started there's obviously a great amount of fear associated with clipless pedals. You know, there's a learning curve there. Um, there's obviously a great amount of, you know, uh, tension and, and nervousness associated with riding on the roads for the first time. And so a little bit of help from people that you trust can really make a big difference there in overcoming those initial apprehensions. Um, I giggle a little bit at the idea of clipless pedals because listeners have heard me like ramble on about how intimidated I am by them. Um, they can be for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's great advice, especially the idea of, Hey, you don't have to learn everything solo the hard way. Um, oh. Yeah. We're, or all we're... at once for that matter. Not all at once. You know, it's Isn't an expensive sport to dive into by the time you buy the bike and the helmet and the bike pump and the bike shoes and the bike outfit. And you can take it in bite-sized pieces. Just start with the bike, flat pedals, wear your regular tennis shoes. You don't have to have Lycra, especially if you're commuting. Jeans, your normal clothes are just fine. A backpack's just fine. You don't have to have panniers. You know, the helmet and the bike are the two critical pieces of equipment. And then you can you can add on from there. And... Um, you know, that's half the fun, frankly, of figuring this out. But I, I say that with a bit of a caveat because I have seen so many women bail on the sport from one negative experience in those early days of it that I think it matters that they get really good instruction early on. Word. 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 I think we'll leave it with that. Okay. Sounds great. Um, Megan, it's, I really appreciate your, your time today. Um, so your firm is Hotman Law Office in yes. there on the there on the front range in Colorado. Correct. Uh, Although but, I do take cases all over the country, but yes, based here in Golden, Colorado. Awesome. And uh, people can also find you at the cyclist-lawyer.com or yes. cyclist underscore lawyer on the Instagrams and wherever yes. else to get some good inspiration. Absolutely. And be a little jealous of dry yet cold weather riding. <laughs> yes, um, I'm jealous. I really, really appreciate your time this morning, and I am totally going to get that uh, first tricycle shag saddle picture from you to put in the show notes. I will notes. send that to you right now. Yes, you'll love cool. it. You'll get a big kick out of it. And awesome. thank you so much for this opportunity and for your time this morning. You're so welcome. Thanks, Megan. Bye. 
All right, folks, there you have it. Big thanks to Megan Hopman for taking the time to chat with me. She's She knows what she's talking about, for real. I'm going to have links in the show notes at girleatsbike.com forward slash joyride019 to some of the different things we discussed, including Megan's practice, her Instagram profile, and her book. Um, so do go ahead and check that out. Also, make sure you follow her. Make sure you follow me. Make sure you get out on your bike and ride and do it safely. I would love it if you'd leave a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help other people to find the show. Better yet, if you could share it along with your friends or even just one woman who you think might like it, that'd be awesome. As always, I appreciate your time and your attention. Remember, friends, life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. Keep moving forward, and until next time, I hope you enjoy the ride. <laughs>